0: Okay, everybody, let's begin. It's always the hardest part, is initiating that. Now it's time, right? So, if you guys are here, I know there'll be some that come in late. You I do want to actually say, I mean, for those of you guys here that are early, you're never late, but it, it would be good. I'll mention it maybe later at the end of the class. You know, I want to start at 1030, which is when we start. So, it'd be better if we can get... Huh? Nine thirty. I'm sorry. <laughs> nine thirty, right? So, so it would be best to make sure that we're here before nine thirty. You know, a few minutes before, just because it will go nice, and so no one misses anything. All right. So finally, we are going to start First Corinthians. I know we've been saying it for quite some time, and now we are finally here. And I'm excited to actually start this book. I'm excited that we have some uh, pastors' classes now with us, so we're we're one class, and it's going to be a blessing. Alright, so if you guys open your Bibles, I'm going to try to get to the first nine verses today, but this is one of those things that if I don't, I'm not rushing it. So if you guys have questions, okay, at any moment, raise your hand, ask, okay? If you have comments, please, I invite that. Say what you're going to say, okay? so First Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9, and then I will pray. This is what the scripture says, it says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful to whom You were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for the gift of Your Word. Lord, because we have Your Spirit, we know we can understand it. So I pray, Father, again, as we, as we dive into this, Lord God, that You would be our Teacher. It certainly is not me, Lord God, it is you. That you would be our guide. That you would be the enlightenment that we need, Lord God. That you would just be everything. That we would decrease and that you would increase this morning, Lord God. I pray that you would build us up in a most holy faith through the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. And I thank you and praise you for everyone that's going to be here. I pray, Lord God, that... That there would be an excitement to want to get into your word. I just think of, again, thanking you so much for last night as the young adult started First Timothy in a Bible study at my house, Lord. What a blessing it was just to see these, these younger ones, Lord God, excited about getting into your word. And I pray that the same would happen here today, on this day, Lord God. So be with us, Lord God. Let us not rush this. whatever it is that you want to say, Lord God. Even if it's something that maybe I missed as I was studying this, Lord God, I pray that you would have your way this morning. And I thank you as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so, just some background on this church. So, the Corinthian church was a church plant in particular by the Apostle Paul. Like, there's a church, for instance, like Colossians. Paul actually never was at the church at Colossae. It was started by someone else. But this in particular, Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey. And let's just say, like many churches, okay, that this church had some problems, okay? It had some problems. Because of the many problems, as we're going to see, this letter is very corrective in nature, okay? As a matter of fact, there was another letter It's called the Hidden Epistle of Paul. Obviously, God didn't want it to be part of His inspired scriptures, but that was also, He refers to it, and that was corrective in nature. So it's very corrective in nature. Now, this is going to be important for us in our understanding of both God and of His church. Many think that the church must be without problems for them to be a legitimate church but then they're really forgetting about the fact that we have a sin nature still. We have a new nature, but we also have a sinful flesh. And until God calls us home, until we get that new one day, we are going to have some problems. There's remaining sin. But if you put put our thinking caps on just for a moment, what practice exists for the purpose of correction? What practice exists? Hebrews tells us this. Discipline, right? Discipline, okay? And, and with that, we must be reminded and encouraged that Hebrews tells us without discipline, we are illegitimate children. Remember, punishment is for the wicked. But God disciplines those who are His children, okay? And the purpose of discipline always is is for correction, that we would now be restored, that we would be right, that we would be made clean, holy, that we would be corrected to not be our old self, but to operate according to the new nature. Right? So the church is not immune to problems, but it has a patient, long-suffering, and kind father. Right? And that's what we're going to see here as we get into this book. Therefore, discipline is a good thing Because it is rooted and grounded in love and has an end goal, okay? It's always the betterment of mankind, the betterment of his body to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. So a little something about the location of this church. It was a port city, okay? It was a port city located on the Gulf of Corinth. So there was a lot of traffic because it was a port city. The People moved in and out. It was a very cultural city in Corinth. And oftentimes, kind of like even today, port cities were more immoral than other cities because you had a whole bunch of different cultures. You know, we always look at culture within the church, like multiculturalism. That's not a good thing, okay? The church is multi-ethnic, right? God has chosen a multi-ethnic people of uh, a body of believers to, to be in his kingdom. But we need to be very careful when we start talking about culture. Because culture, when it's all said and done, you can look at anyone no matter what nationality you go to, okay? A lot of times culture is very sinful, okay? When we become Christians, when we become saved, that is now our culture. That is what unites us. We don't live. In accordance to the flesh, however, that's going to look, maybe according to your culture, okay? But we live according to us being new creations in Christ Jesus. That means we live by a certain rule. We live by God's moral standards, or at least we strive to live by God's moral standards. We're not going to do it perfectly. So, this is important. So, like today, the more, oftentimes, the more metropolitan an area is, the more sinful it is. Let's just be honest. The more we see they operate much differently than what Scripture tells us they should operate. And all you've got to do is just go to where there's a lot of a big metropolitan areas. The closer you are to that, the closer that you guys are going to be to a, uh, a educational institution. And oftentimes all those things are just a brainwashing of things that are contrary to what the Word of God says. I've said before that Corinth was especially known for their depravity, even in the secular world. Okay, it, it, best way I can pos- possibly think about it: well, we live right next to New York City, so we kind of see that right here. Think of Las Vegas. You ever hear that? Watch a commercial. What what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Because we know the things that go on in Vegas, and we know there's obviously we're not. Called but, Sin City. It's called Sin City, but we can call that right where we live too, right? So this is kind of the context. And it kind of does hit home for us because we live kind of in that context, being very close to, you know, one of the biggest cities in the world. So, that will help us to know exactly what we're getting into. Alright? So we're going to go through this nice and slowly, verse by verse. Some verses might go together, but for the most part, I'm going to go verse by verse. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So we see here, Paul, like he often did in his letters, reminds this church of his apostleship. And by him doing this, he is authenticating its inspiration, that this is not the word of Paul, okay? That this is the word of Jesus Christ, okay? It's in Paul's personality, right? But it is the very words of Christ. So his apostleship authenticates that, This is the word of Jesus. So, so important. And then we have this other uh, name, Sosthenes, was a companion of Paul. Now, we don't know too much about this man, Sosthenes. He's mentioned one time, if it's even the same man, it's actually in Acts chapter 18. And if you look at how he's mentioned there, he was a Jewish leader like Paul used to be. And he was opposed to Paul. He was an enemy of Paul. So, if this is the same Sosthenes, I think it's kind of ironic that he must have gotten saved, and though he was an enemy of Paul, like Paul was the enemy of the church, at some point, they are both Jewish leaders, they get saved, and now they're serving the Lord together. So we don't know for sure if it's the same Sosthenes, but I definitely like that connection, if it's true. But we don't know for sure exactly if it is the same Sosthenes. And then he says this, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So I want to say that this verse, believe it or not, is foundational in understanding this whole book. By referring to them as the church, okay? Okay? He is calling them God's people. Okay? Scripture is for God's people. In particular, God's people who are gathered together in a local region. This is the local church at Corinth. Like, Bible Baptist is a local church. And then, Paul uses two forms of the word holy. Two forms. He uses a verb, and then he uses an adjective. The verb is hagiazo. And it, revert, and it refers to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We know being sanctified means being set apart for holy use, for the use for use of God. God set them apart, and this really becomes powerful when we understand the kind of verb that it is. And you guys know that whoever's teaching, pastor, oftentimes when he's in the pulpit, you know we put a Greek word up there, and many of us when we are teaching, we try our best. To explain the original language. Okay? We believe this is important because the inspired scriptures were not in English, but in Hebrew and Greek with a little bit of Aramaic. Right? So we do our best. It's important that we go back to those original languages. We don't have to do it for every single word, but we do it. We believe it's important because in our English language, sometimes it leaves out some details. Sometimes it doesn't get to the real particulars. It's good. We have a great translation, right? But sometimes it misses key things. Okay, so I think it's important to go and dive a little bit, a little bit further. We don't always get every original Greek Hebrew word, but we do uh, when it's necessary. Okay? So this particular verb, it's in the perfect, it's perfect, passive, and it's a participle. Now, passive, If you think of what passive means, right? Is that we have done nothing. That we are being acted upon. Right? So we are set apart. God has set us apart. We've done nothing ourselves. So passive means that we have done nothing, but God has done it all. Perfect means that this was a completed action. It's a done deal. That is, something happened in the past, but it endures to the end. We know that once saved, always saved. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Right? So this is extremely important. And we can be sure of this because our perfect Father did all of this. We have new life by the perfect Holy Spirit. We have been cleansed and redeemed by the perfect Son. And the participle says that this is truly real. It is a matter of fact. So those little details really make it come to light even more when we look at that. So it says that the church of God in verse 2 which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified the verb form that I just went through in Christ Jesus saints by calling then the adjective is for saints. Right? That's the Greek word hagios. Every perfectly called out one, can rightfully be called a saint. Now, we don't really refer to each other like that, right? And this is important for us to know, especially for maybe some of you newer converts, or maybe some of you guys that might have came out of Roman Catholicism, or Eastern or Greek Orthodoxy, which, under Roman Catholic dogma, they, they make people saints only if they did something really extra, extra wonderful or spectacular. And a lot of the ones that they call saints aren't even saints. They're the furthest thing from it, right? They're not even believers. So we need to understand and be encouraged that every single, single believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. So we can refer to us all as saints. That's exactly who we are. That's what God says. And that's what we need to say, all right? So it is this assembly of believers who have been set apart by the Father... So this is true for anyone who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours as verse 2 says. Then he says this Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's so easy you know, Joey was talking about this yesterday uh, that the tendency in a lot of the epistles especially Paul's letters is to just kind of breeze through the greetings because it's kind of standard. But we need to look at this as if this, this is the first book that we've ever read. Okay? Yeah, it might be a standard greeting, but there's much in this and we, don't want, we want to do justice to this. Right? He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, this was a common greeting that believers gave to each other. And we need to understand That grace and peace always go together. Because one leads to the other. We can say that there is no peace with God without Him demonstrating His grace to us, which we know is unmerited. Okay, we know that we were once at enmity with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were at odds with God when we were not under grace. But being under grace, having his unmerited favor, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can say that there's no peace with God without him demonstrating his grace to us, which we know is unmerited. And in the same way, there is not the possibility of having God's saving grace upon you and still being at enmity with God. It's impossible. If you are in Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are forever at peace with God, even when we we sin. And we know that as believers, we still sin. Believers can even commit pretty bad sins. We are still at peace with God. We need to be right with Him. We need to confess and repent of our sin if we want to be in fellowship, right? But we're always still going to be at peace with God if we are a true believer. That's a beautiful, awesome thing. It reminds us again that God is for us is not against us. Also, this grace is not referring to that to that which is common. That is the type of grace that is displayed on all mankind. Again, we call that common grace. Okay? This is important. Um, <clears throat> I was looking at this as I was studying this a little bit more. We know that we believe in the doctrines of grace. In this when we, we talk about the doctrines of grace, we're talking about saving Grace. We call that the five points of Calvinism. I don't like that name. Okay, I prefer the name the doctrines of grace. It's biblical. We believe that. But I like this. The Reformed Church of America gave three points to the doctrines of common grace. And they are very accurate. And these points say this. The goodness that God displays on everyone is one of the points in common grace. That God displays his goodness to everyone. We know that God lets the sun shine on the just and the unjust. You have wicked, wicked people that are enemies of God. And God allows them to have prosperity, families, riches, wealth, prosperity, all those types of things. God is good to everyone. Secondly, another aspect of common grace is the fact that He restrains sin in this world. Think about that just for a moment. We know that the world is wicked and falls under the sway of the wicked one. And I've said this before, if God did not have His restraining hand on this world as we speak, it would be utter chaos. There is no limit to what mankind can do in their sinfulness, teamed up with Satan, okay, in his wicked ways. Okay? God's restraining hand is upon this world. And then thirdly, the fact that He allows wicked people to do good things for the betterment of society. They might not be good deeds per se that give any merit to them before God, but they're still good things in general. This is not because it's in them, it's because of God's common grace. But this grace that he's talking about here is not that kind of <coughs> grace. It is the grace of God that saves. This grace and peace is an acknowledgement of their own context in this world. They belong to God and they need need to live as such. As His church. There's nothing we bring to the table in our salvation. Right? We come with empty hands as sinners and He saves us. But now that He saved us, He saved us to be much different. He's equipped us with His Holy Spirit. We are able to live this life. Everything that is necessary for life and godliness. That is why we are here. Listen to uh, John Calvin on this. I think he does it really well. says something really well. He says, Nothing is more desirable than to have God propitious to us. And this is signified by grace. And then to have prosperity and success and all things flowing from Him. And this is intimated by peace. For however things may seem to smile on us, if God be angry even blessing itself is turned to a curse. The very foundation of our felicity is the favor of God by which we enjoy true and solid prosperity and by which also our salvation is promoted even when we are in adversities. And then, as he prays to God for peace, we must understand that whatever good comes to us, it is the fruit of divine benevolence nor must we omit to notice that he prays at the same time to the Lord Jesus Christ for these blessings. Worthily indeed is this honor rendered to him, who is not only the administrator and dispenser of his father's bounty to us, but also works all things in connection with him. It was, however, the special object of the apostle to show that through him all God's blessings come to us. And I like the way he says that, so true. So as God's church... We stand in grace always. We can never forget that. And even when we sin, our peace with Him has not changed. We are forever at peace. So whenever you read, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, remember those things. There's meaning besides uh, behind that standard greeting. There's so much truth behind there. Then he goes on to say this in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul can only be thankful for God's amazing grace. He experienced it himself and he rejoiced when others experienced it as well. And that's not what we do. We think of someone that we know, a loved one or someone from our inner circles who gets saved and there's nothing more joyful and exciting than when we see a loved one come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We rejoice when it's our own salvation, and we rejoice with others. So important. Verse 5. That in everything, you are enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. So Let's look at what this means right here, especially so we don't misunderstand it. Because many will take a verse like this and completely twist it to their own destruction. Okay? That in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. Enriched, the word for enriched here is plutizo in the Greek and it means exactly what it says, to make rich, enriched. We were enriched, obviously, or of course we were. It comes from God. Okay? We are extremely enriched. We are children of the Father, the one who makes all things and works all things according to the counsel of His will. The Creator God is our adopted Father. We indeed are enriched. We are the bride of the King, King Jesus. And this marriage metaphor calls us to understand what that means. And the best way for us to do that is to go right to Genesis in the first marriage, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And I love, I love marriage and what it represents. Right? We see this concept of oneness. Right? We are one with Christ our Lord and Savior. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit who gave us life in Christ. He is always with us in this sinful age. And we need Him. We need to be reminded that He is with us in this sinful age to do His will. So important. We can do all things in Christ. Yes. In His will. And His will is foundational in understanding the everything in this verse so important because we know we have people that believe differently within the church that think that they can just do anything that they have the power to do anything because God is their father they have the Holy Spirit no His will is foundational in understanding the every, the everything who were we enriched in according to this verse Jesus Christ right right We're enriched in Christ. So Christ is the enabler and qualifier of the everything. Right? You need to look at the everything in light of Christ. But what is the everything? Right? Does this mean that because we are children of the King and the bride of the King that wealth and prosperity is ours? That is, we are entitled to it, like many say? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact... We have been called to be just like Jesus, who was the Master. And if you remember, Jesus' life, it was far from health, wealth, and prosperity, but rather a life of persecution and suffering. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will suffer persecution. That doesn't mean to go looking for trouble. That's not what God's talking about. But if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus... It's coming. And oftentimes we think of persecution as, well, our lives getting put in jail, this or that. No, persecution is everything, okay? It, it, it was talking about it last night. Just the fact that we deny ourselves is a form of persecution. It could be anything, okay? And if we allow Scripture to be our guide, we're going to see some helpful things. And so for that, I just want to look at one verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, to the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, initially, we can say that there's no life apart from Christ, right? There's no life, there's no spiritual life apart from Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were made alive through Christ. But all of us that have eternal life have to spend some time in this life, right now, not in heaven, learning how to live in a way that pleases Him. Right? This is the godliness part in that verse. That He has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In the age to come, all we're going to be is godly. We were talking about this again last night. I long for that time when I can worship my Master without this sinful flesh attached to me. But for now, again, Joey made a good point yesterday. right? I think this was Joey that said this, right? This is the only top opportunity. We have a unique opportunity to serve Him now when we're not like that in the future. In other words, that we can really deny our flesh which is wicked and be under the the power of God. So if He has given us everything we need to be godly in this life, we need to understand that we're a new creation, and we have His mind, and we have the ability to live in accordance to this mind, because we have the indwelt Holy Spirit. If we think that we're going to try to live this godly life on our own, then we're completely missing the point. As believers, yes, we have the indwelt Holy Spirit. But you cannot and will not live the Christian life in your power. So He's granted us everything. We have the mind of Christ. We have His Holy Spirit. We even have a new heart. We have the old one attached here too, but we have a new heart. We have to use all We have to look at what He has given us and operate with that understanding. And we have to believe what He says. There's so much power right within us. But what are we doing with that power? It's so important. Going back to the text in verse 4. It says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. So if we go to our text now, It explicitly states some particulars of what we are enriched in. That is, in speech and in knowledge. Let's keep it within the context. Too often, false teaching comes and we take something out of context, right? Let's look at the context and the immediate context. Now, the enriching is an enriching of spiritual things. And spiritual gifts. Things that those without the Spirit... Who would be who? Who are those without the Spirit? Non-believers, right? Things that those without the Spirit cannot do. So right away, we stand in the extreme minority in this world. Right? As believers who have the Holy Spirit. First of all, the fact that it's so little. Scripture is very clear. We stand in the extreme minority. Think of how amazingly blessed we are just thinking about that for a moment. That we stand in a minority. We have the indwelt Holy Spirit to be able to do spiritual things. Those who do not have the Spirit cannot do anything that only can happen under the Spirit's power. So these things in particular, let's look at speech. Speech. Can this mean the gifts that have to do with speech? Spiritual gifts that have to do with speech? Maybe, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Certainly we know that this is true for for some of the Corinthians, but this letter is to them as a collective body. Not everyone is equipped with the spiritual gifts that have to do with speech. Right? Right? Not everyone has the same spiritual gifts. We don't want it that way, right? The church would not be able to function if everyone was an eye, if everyone was an hand, right? That's the analogy that he gives. So not everyone in the church has the spiritual gifts that pertain to speech, but a Christian speech ought to be much different than the world's speech, right? A worldly person cannot speak about the wonderful truths of God's Word effectively or even accurately because they don't have the Holy Spirit. The reason is because it takes the Spirit's help to be able to do that. But the reason we can speak the wonderful truths of God's Word is because we have the Holy Spirit. And since the printing press was invented in the 1500s, we have it in abundance, right? We speak the things of God the things of God only come from within, within this book. Right? And we've talked about it all the time that everyone, uh, the, again, 1 Peter chapter 3, that we all need to be able to give a defense of the hope that is in us. And I said that that verse is for every believer even if they just got saved that day. That you need to be able to defend what you believe and be able to speak the truth of the gospel that you believed in that saved you. Right? Speaking the oracles of God. I like what MacArthur says on this. He says the particular speech in mind here is that of telling God's truth. God gives every believer the capacity to speak for him. Many of you might think that you don't have the ability to do that. Now some have the ability to do it more than others. But that's one of the blessings of being a child of God. That you can speak authoritatively, believe it or not, as well. The truths of God's word. God gives every believer the capacity to speak for Him. He says this We do not all have eloquence, like me, an impressive vocabulary, like me, I murder the English language, or a captivating personality, maybe, maybe I have that, right? (laughs) But we all have the necessary God given ability, the same capabilities the same capacity to speak for Him in the unique way that He wants us to speak. Think about when He sent the 120 out. He said, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will remind you of what you're going to say in that hour. Now again, that context was a little bit different. But God will do the same for us. Besides lack of holiness, He says, I believe the most common failure of Christians is not speaking for their Lord. The most frequent excuses are I don't know what to say or I don't know how to say it or I just don't think I can do it. Well, first of all, you can't. I'm going to add that. I think he misses it. You can't. But you can with the Holy Spirit. He says Paul shatters these excuses. We are enriched in Him and all speech and all knowledge. That is what the Scripture says. Right? We are without excuse. He has granted us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And part of godliness is certainly how we live. (coughs) But of course, it's also what we say. That's part of how we live. (coughs) Then it says, he enriched us in all speech and in all knowledge. Knowledge. This is an esoteric knowledge. That is a knowledge intended for and understood by a particular people. And who are those particular people? God's people, right? The world is not enriched to be able to do these things. But believers and believers alone are able to do that. So these particular people are God's people. And, what the, and the knowledge that they are able to speak is God's truth. And God's truth comes only from one source, God's Word. 1 Corinthians 2.16 For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Do we understand that this morning? Do we embrace that this morning? If we really embrace it, we're going to try to get in this as much as we can and give it as much time and diligence and care as we can so that we can be the vessels that God has called us to be. That is why he saved us. That is why we have breath in our lungs. Verse 6 and 7. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 6 is encouraging. We will see that this church had its many problems as we start getting into this book. But this says something very good concerning them, right? The word for confirmed, again, the Greek word babeo, carries the idea of being established. In other words, their testimony let no doubts of what and who they believed in. And that's a good thing. As screwed up as they were, and they had to be corrected in a lot of things, they had a good testimony of being bold for Christ. They were unwavering in their faith. One commentator rightly points out that the word confirmed is most interesting. It means to have something settled in our convictions. When something's settled, it's a done deal. We live in accordance to that, right? In a day when people are tossed to and fro with uncertainty, the person who knows what he believes and why he believes it is rich indeed. Amen? So again, as screwed up as they were, and they were. They were unwavering in their faith. They weren't lacking in any gift. And as we just mentioned, they were fully equipped to, do, to, to live the Christian life. They could speak the oracles of God. They didn't have to go to seminary to speak the oracles of God. Any one of us can do that. They could defend their faith and they could edify one another. And that's really the whole purpose behind spiritual gifts is to bring edification to the body of Christ. God will equip His church with all the spiritual gifts needed for them to operate like a well-oiled machine. That's how it should be within the body of Christ. And I believe verses 8 and 9 closes this section beautifully. And it looks like I'm timing this good. Christ will confirm us to the end. Verse 8, Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of Ephesians 5, verse 27, uh, 26 and 27. and He's talking about again, the husband and his responsibility to his wife. Like Christ is to the church, he says this, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And that's exactly how we are looked upon at, a, at the moment of salvation. We are blameless in Christ Jesus. And I can tell you right now, I've been saved since I was a. I, I got it very young by the grace of the Lord. And I did a lot of things that certainly are not blameless. Yet I'm blameless in Christ. Because of what Christ has done. Verse 9. God is faithful to whom He were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? He cannot deny Himself. The whole purpose of creation. Remember this because this is important. Especially for understanding all of Scripture. Its scope. Its scope is Christ. The whole purpose of creation was redemption. He created because of redemption. Redemption preceded creation. Right? The covenant of redemption which we talk about. Right? The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the earth. God knew everything that He was going to do. This is the way that God wanted to do it. Right? This is the way that He was completely fine with Himself. He didn't have to create. Yet He created for the purpose of redemption. He cannot deny himself, because it's part of his will. He will do all his holy will with us in this world. So I think this is a great kickoff to help us to understand all the things that we're going to go through. Because many people, again, there's a there's a and again, I understand what they're saying, but there's a teaching that thinks that Christians can't be carnal. Yes, they can. That shouldn't define us. Absolutely should not define us. Let's just be honest. I have carnal moments. Anytime we sin, we can say we're having a carnal moment. But even Christians can go and they can start veering off the path a little bit. They believe and start doing things that they're not supposed to do. Or maybe they just need to be taught better. Think of how many true believers were just not taught very well. They, they actually believe and they uphold scripture, they think they're doing it, and yet they've just been taught wrong. And because of that, maybe certain things happen. You've got to be very careful with that teaching, because that's not right too. I, I know their heart. We're, we're not trying to promote a, a lawless, a lawless people. That's antinomianism. That's not good. Okay? We are to be law-abiding citizens. We are to be law-keepers, loving God. We're called to love God. We don't love God apart from not obeying the Ten Commandments. But yet, this church was a carnal church. It was a true church. Paul even says, I have to speak to you that way. So it's important for us to understand the foundation before we get into it. Amen? Makes sense? The beginning, sometimes there's not so much theology in it, okay? But I wanted to make sure that I did justice to that. So I hope I did. Um, is there any questions? Any questions? No? Okay. Good stuff. All right, let's pray. Next week we'll get into, I don't know if it's probably going to, just the next paragraph. Maybe it might get into the one following that, but it's not going to be a rush, okay? So let's pray. Father, again, I thank you so much this morning for all that you do, for being an amazing God, a loving God, a gracious, holy, righteous, wonderful God. Lord, I thank you that, you know, this morning, as we observe the Lord's table again, I'm always reminded that it is your table. It is your table. And as your children, as those who have been saved, Called, elect, chosen, sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are forever seated at God's table. What an amazing, wonderful thing that is. So let us embrace this time that we observe this. That we remember, but really, Lord, it's more than a memory. This is something that is very real. It's a picture of what eternity is going to be on a much smaller level. You are with your people, always and forever. So let us live in accordance to that this day. And I thank you and I praise you for all that you do and all that you will continue to do. Continue to make us decreased so that you can be increased this morning. And I thank you and praise you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.